8 of Second Chronicles, verses 1 to 10. Here are some of uh, Solomon's projects after he built uh, the temple and his own palace. Uh, he built cities which Hiram had given to him, putting this together with kings. It appears that uh, some of the payments Solomon gave Hiram were cities that Hiram didn't like, gave back. And apparently Solomon did some uh, refurbishing work on those cities. Um, and verse 3 is rare. What do you see Solomon doing in verse 3? Yeah, he didn't normally do that. That wasn't a common thing for him, but he did capture Hamath Zobah. And uh, he builds various things in 4 through 6. And in 7 through 10, you see various people working under Solomon, the foreigners who are slaves, basically, to him, um, his own people that he makes captains and commanders and officers and so forth over the foreigners. Questions and comments? I don't have a great answer to you. So. Sounds good to me. And these are warehouses. And somebody had to get over that. Had to Do so you know somebody had to watch over and manage it because it had to be a lot. Right. So that's, that's the way I've always Good question. Other comments? Questions? I thought it was neat. Just in there, in verse 7, he makes those people who they hadn't driven out, you know, forced labor. 
I thought it was neat just to begin with that uh, it kind of further shows uh, his complete control. You know, like they, I mean, what they failed in in the, in the past. Now Solomon, under the under the uh, help of David, now under his control, is able to uh, go a step further in purging the land, kind of. And uh, I thought it was interesting that you know he wouldn't use his own people for those kind of things. This is more or less the golden age of Israel. Anything else? <coughs> 11 to 18. And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David into the house that he had built for her. And he said, For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy whereunto the ark of the Lord has come. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings. And to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, <coughs> even as the duty of every day required, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbath, and on the new moon, and on the set feast, three times in the year, even in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles. He appointed according to the ordinance of David his father the courses of the priests to to their service and the Levites their offices to praise and to minister before the priests as the duty of every day required. The doorkeepers also by their courses at every gate, for so had David the man of God commanded. And they departed not from the commandment of the king and to the priests and Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasure. Now all the work of Solomon was prepared into the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord and until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. Then went Solomon to Ezion Gibber and to Eloth on the seashore in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him by the hands of his servantships and servants that had knowledge of the sea. And they came with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and fetched from there 450 talents of gold and brought them to King Solomon. Okay. So it's kind of interesting in verse 11. He uh, builds a, a house uh, uh, for Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, why didn't he want her in the city of David? Yeah, it was holy. It was the place where the ark was, where the temple was, where God dwelt. Well, what would be wrong with her being in a place like that? Exactly. Now, isn't it ironic that later we know from kings that Solomon will build various temples and altars to these foreign idol gods? You know, it's, it teaches us a lesson that purity is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. You know, right at this moment, you know, he's concerned about uh, not desecrating Jerusalem and all of that. But later he will actually promote the idolatry because of the influence of those wives. It's easy for us to be careful about following the will of the Lord in one point in our life, but gradually let that concern erode by the influence of things that, that uh, uh, drag us down and turn us away from the Lord. So I think it's kind of ironic on his part. And then you see some of the things that Solomon did. In verse 12 you see him doing what? Yes, the sacrifice. Verse 13, you see him observing what? 
yeah, the feast. So it's along with the Sabbaths and the new moons and all that. In verse 14, you see him appointing what? Yes, exactly. And uh, all of this Solomon did. And then in 17 and 18, you see Solomon uh, engaging in a commercial partnership with Hiram uh, to go on a trading mission. Um, so, these are just, this kind of is a chapter that pulls together a lot of the stuff Solomon did besides building the temple. We've focused so much on Solomon and the temple, and this chapter kind of just collects up some of Solomon's other uh, accomplishments, really focusing on, um, you know, his, his greatness and uh, prosperity. Comments and questions about that? Yes. That's correct. Uh, that is correct. Uh, perhaps not. Uh, well, I think after he finished the temple. Um, in First uh, Kings seven one, it says, "Now Solomon was building his own house thirteen years." And he finished all his house. So it looks to, I believe that Solomon did the seven years for the temple and then the 13 years for his own palace. Uh, well, they probably didn't have enough bedrooms. No wonder it took him 13 years with 700 wives and 300 concubines. <laughs> Yeah, I, I assume most of his wives didn't share bedrooms. So. Well, you know, it's kind of like, uh, have you ever done worse than what you knew? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, don't haven't we all had that experience? I mean, sometimes it may be that we don't do well because we don't know. But I bet it's pretty common that we don't do well even though we do know. And that's where Solomon's at. He knows. He's got tremendous wisdom. But he didn't always follow it. Now, that's really not Chronicles' emphasis. Chronicles is so focused on the temple aspect that he really doesn't deal with Solomon's downfall not because he's trying to whitewash Solomon, just because these kinds of extraneous things just really don't fit uh, the focus. Solomon is really the temple builder, and he's the one who God has blessed with wisdom and wealth and so forth. And it's just those two points that he's really trying to make. In verse 12, should he have been doing that? Sure. Why shouldn't he? Uh, yeah, would we not assume this altar was at the temple? No. Okay. Uh, nobody's got the NIV, do they? Who's got the New King James? Oh, you got the NIV? What does it say? Read 12. The before here is uh, spatial, not temporal. 
It's in front of, not before he built. So I think this is the altar. Well, a lot of places, but I was looking just now in First Kings chapter uh, seven, one, in the verse right before, at the end of verse six, uh, chapter six rather. First Kings chapter six, verse uh, thirty-eight. Other comments. Absolutely. It can tear you down over time. And the mate has no interest in your two primary goals. Uh, agreed. Other thoughts? Solomon had more than one to tear him down. He was uh, torn down by an army of them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the ideal, and I think what, what we ought to see is that you start in your life with God as a baby, immature and, and struggling, and you grow stronger and stronger and more spiritual and closer to God and more mature. But what we're going to see so many times in the pattern of these kings is that they start out relatively well, and as they get older they start going farther away from the Lord. Now, that shouldn't be, but it often is. It's a warning to us. I mean, most of you are young, really. All of us are relatively young. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen to us when we get older? I mean, you know, there's lots of examples in the Bible of people, as they got older, their heart was turned away, or they became proud, or they quit trusting in God, or whatever. We'll see it. We see it in Solomon in the King's account, and we'll see it in several here in Chronicles. And it just ought to make us stop and think. I mean, how, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, what's your heart going to be like? You know, I mean, the truth of the matter is, just looking around here, I mean, most of you I know pretty well, almost everybody here is really committed to the Lord. That may be true of absolutely everybody here. Um, but I mean, the chances are unfortunately overwhelming that 20 years from now, that would not be true of, of nearly all of us. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good warning. Should, you know, it's like anything else. You can have a blazing inferno, but if you over time quit adding fuel, that fire will gradually go out. And it will in our lives, in any one of our lives, if we don't stay close to God. So. And you quit purifying your heart and your life and 
There's a lot of things that can happen, and we'll see a lot of them in the course of Second Chronicles. assumed it was convenient to have an alliance by marriage with Egypt, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't love her, but it's convenient. He loves her as much as the other 900. (laughs) (laughs) Other comments? All right, uh, chapter 9, we have an incident here you will remember well, kind of an interesting incident, verses 1 to 12. Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon's difficult question. She had a very large retinue, with camels carrying spices, a large amount of gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke to him about all that was on her heart, and Solomon answered her, answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from Solomon, which he did not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, and the house that she had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his ministers and their, and their attire, his cupbearers and their attire, his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, she was breathless. Then she said to the king, it was, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the report until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpassed the report that I heard. How blessed are your men! How blessed are, your, are these your servants, who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom! Blessed be the Lord your God who, delight, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as, as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore he made you king over them, to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. There had never been, there had never been a spice like that which, she, which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. And the servants of Urim, and the, and the servants of Solomon, who brought gold from Ophir, also brought algum trees and precious stones. And from the algum the king made steps to the house of the Lord, and, to, and, to the, and for the king's palace and lyres, and harps for the, for the singers. And none, and none like that was seen before in the, in the land of Judah. And King Solomon gave to, queen, to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested, besides the return which she had brought to the king. Then she turned and went to her own land with her servants. Okay, so who comes to see Solomon? 
The Queen of Sheba. Where was Sheba? In the north. No, in the south. <laughs> Good guess. Yeah, I think probably on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, maybe in areas like what we call Yemen and some of those areas down off of oh, uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know where Saudi Arabia is? Yeah, that's right. So probably somewhere down in there, which was a long ways. You know, and kind of um, the Arabian territories down in there uh, were kind of, they were far enough away sort of exotic. You know, they were just, you know, long ways. They were uh, heavy traders. Uh, they were involved in commercial things. And so she's heard about Solomon, and she wants to see with her own eyes she doesn't really think he could possibly be so wise and so wealthy as what she's heard. And she comes and she's got a lot of difficult questions for Solomon and she sees all of his setup and what's her conclusion? Yeah. <laughs> she couldn't believe what she heard and what she heard wasn't half as good as what it really was. <laughs> she's just amazed, overwhelmed by the... the you know, this is, this is tremendous. And uh, she sees this as being a tribute in verse 8 to what? The to the Lord putting him on the throne. Now, here's something that's important. Our conduct is a testimony to God. You know, we're lights in the world, a city set on a hill, and the point in Matthew 5 was so that others might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our conduct, conduct reflects on our parentage, in this case our spiritual parentage. And so she comes to recognize God because of what she sees in Solomon. And uh, I think that, that's a good example uh, for us. And so she brings him a lot of stuff and he gives her gifts. And uh, she goes back to her own land, very impressed by what she's seen in Solomon. Uh, comments and questions? So was it wrong for Solomon to show her that she I don't suppose. I don't know how much he was really showing her. Uh, Anyway, but no, I don't. I don't suppose so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I don't know. And with Hezekiah, I believe he was doing it to try to form an alliance with the Babylonians. In this case, I think she's just coming to pepper him with hard questions, and he's able to answer them. I don't know that this was so much his incentive to try to boast. Really, can you imagine Solomon trying to show off? I mean, that would almost cheapen it. He didn't need to. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean... It's kind of like, you know, Michael Jordan showing off in his basketball skills. I mean, you know, <laughs> that would cheapen him a good bit. You know he doesn't need to do that. It said that she, was, she looked around 
impressive. Other thoughts? Thirteen to uh, twenty-one. <clears throat> now the ways of the gold became Solomon in one year were six hundred and three score and six talents of gold. And beside that which the traders and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And the king Solomon made two hundred bucklers of beaten gold, six hundred shields of beaten gold, with one buckler. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, 300 shekels of gold went on one shield, and the king put them in the horse, in the house of the horse of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne, with a footstool of gold, which were fastened to the throne, and saved in one side by the place of the feet, and two lines standing beside the stay. And twelve lines stood there on one side, and, up, and on the other, upon the six steps, there was not the like made in any kingdom. And all Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold, silver, nothing accounted of it of in the days of Solomon. It was counted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had shipped <coughs> the charges with the servants of Aaron. Once Every three years came the ships crushed bring gold and silver and ivory. Wow. Solomon is really rich. I mean, gold all over the place. Amazing. What did he finally start doing with the gold? Yeah, he lost to do what, know what else to do with it. He starts making it into ornamental shields. Uh, would gold make a good Functional shield? Why not? Too too soft, yeah, especially. Uh, but, I mean, these are ornamental shields. These are decorative. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, you just got so much of this stuff. What else do you do? His throne, what was it made out of? Ivory overlaid in gold. And, you know, that would take a lot of elephants, I'm sure. Um, and uh, we've got... Uh, you know, lions around the throne, I presume probably gold lions, not living or dead ones. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Clarify that right quick. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, nothing. I don't think anything about it. And uh, verse 20, silver was not even valuable. There was so much gold. Hey, silver's nothing. Can you imagine the the you know, riches in, in Solomon's kingdom. I mean, his drinking vessels are of gold. That's <laughs> just uh, pretty amazing. You take somebody today who drinks out of gold cups, that would be, uh, you know, just pretty, uh, pretty weird. <laughs> and uh, trading in Tarshish, bringing back gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So there's some translational questions. Every time you read animal names, plant names, or precious stone names. You can expect a lot of translational questions, partially because, you know, these, uh, you, you, you understand the meaning of words from their contexts. But a lot of times, context for precious stones, there's not a lot of context that's going to tell you one from another, or a plant from another, or an animal from another. But anyhow, it's obvious that uh, Solomon is very prosperous. Comments and questions? 
Well, I think, I think the, uh, probably talking about his palace, but it's called the House of the Forest of Lebanon because it's like he's got so much cedar from Lebanon in it that he's like, like he's got the whole forest of Lebanon there in the house. I think that's the idea. Maybe. Um, in, in the king's account, obviously, it, um, I mean, that's the account that talks about his downfall. And it is interesting that the king's account, it's chapter 11 that talks about his downfall. It's really chapters 9 and 10 that talk about him multiplying horses and, and material possessions. And it almost seems like it's preparing for his downfall. It also said not to multiply wives, and he did that too. Now, I understand that these are blessings from God, but what should Solomon have done? I'm wondering if this wouldn't have been better off invested in the people. Maybe he could have cut down on the heavy rate of taxation and things like that. I'm not so sure it's the riches, but multiplying riches for himself and using them selfishly, which he does seem to do. So I think there is something to worry about in this, even though they are blessings from God. Other questions and comments? Well, I mean, you know, we are... Who was I talking to yesterday, I think? Was it you? Yep. What was you? You want to tell them about what we were talking about? Yeah, I'm not sure about I remember specifically, but uh, there was a guy at a preset meeting, and uh, he talked about the fact that... He was telling a story about a friend of his who... He was, the meeting was kind of on giving, and I was talking about a friend of his who made, I think it was around $50,000 a year when he started the business. And uh, he gave... Something like 15 or, let's see, he lived off 70% of it, I think is what it was. He lived off 70% and used the other 30% to, in giving. I'm not sure exactly how he decided to spend it, but he lived off 70%. And then he talked about the fact that his friend, uh, his business was starting to be more successful, and he made 70000 the next year, and then the next year 90000 and how you know, he was still living off 70%. And he said, well, you know, what if he made, got the, you know, 270000 or 300000 would you still need to live off 70% and still give 30%? I mean, you'd still be giving more, but, but he said, the guy that's me, said that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be living off 70% because you don't need 70% of 300,000. I mean, you, you know, if you're living off of 70% of 50,000 just fine, then, you know, why wouldn't you stay, you know, living at that amount and being able to use more of what you're left with to the service of others? That's kind of 
And we're almost in the mentality that as long as you give 10% or 15% or whatever, it's okay for you to indulge yourself to the max no matter how much money you accumulate. And we're all kind of in that mentality, some worse than others, and I'm not sure that's at all biblical. So, Other comments and questions on all these possessions of Solomon? All right, uh, 22 to the end of the chapter. Okay, so this sort of summarizes Solomon's greatness, his riches, his uh, uh, impressing others, his, his uh, status. Um, you know, really many of the things that it says here we already knew quite a bit about. Uh, but he becomes a very great king. He's recognized as being a great king in riches and wisdom. He has international fame. God has blessed David. David um, is a, or Solomon rather, and Solomon is a, uh, um, a, a king that would impress anyone in a, in a physical sense at least, and during the early part of his reign in a spiritual sense. And that's just where we leave the story of Solomon here in Chronicles. You can tell some about the purpose of the writer of Chronicles in terms of the space he gives to each of the kings. The, they, uh, Chronicles gives the greatest amount of space to David, the second greatest amount of space to Solomon. And anybody know who gets the third greatest amount of space in Chronicles? Good. Very good. All right, comments and questions on chapter 9. Yeah, I don't know. You're welcome. Other comments or questions? All 
right. Well, I'm glad to move on from Solomon. It's uh, been a long time uh, looking at David and Solomon, and I think uh, we'll find some other uh, interesting uh, situations. Not all that encouraging in some cases, but uh, at least interesting uh, in these next few chapters. We know this uh, story of uh, Rehoboam fairly well. Um, why, don't we, um, why don't we read 1 to 11 in chapter 10? Solomon is scarcely cold in his grave before his glorious kingdom falls apart. You know, you've got Rehoboam. He, when Solomon dies, he's going to be king in his place. He goes up to Shechem for the coronation. Do you know what the word Rehoboam means? May the people be enlarged. And uh, it's kind of ironic <laughs> what happens to Rehoboam's kingdom. It shrinks. So he did not exactly live up to his name. Um, he has a good pedigree, but uh, he doesn't have the wisdom to keep it. Jeroboam has come back. Now we know from Kings that Jeroboam had been an official in Solomon's government, and when Ahijah the prophet came and promised him ten of the tribes because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, Jeroboam fled down to Egypt. Now that Solomon is dead, he's come back. He's sort of a ringleader of the people. Jeroboam and all Israel come to Rehoboam, and what do they ask for? Yeah, in what sense? They want Rehoboam to let up on some of the heavy taxes and the forced labor. They want a reduction in those things. These people did not come to Shechem to celebrate the fact of Rehoboam's kingship. They came to negotiate the terms of the kingship. They're not willing to make him king until they've hammered out a compromise on just what his administration is going to be like. Um, they were really burdened by what Solomon had done with them, and they needed him to, to make this easier. Now, they used some terms with the hard yoke and the hard service and so forth in verse 4 that are used of their slavery under Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. I mean, they're, they're saying, this is just really unbearable. This is too much on us. We need you to let up. 
And um, you might think about that in connection with the Lord, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Um, they come to Rehoboam asking this. What was Rehoboam's initial response? Yeah, give me three days to think about it. To talk with people about it. Was that a good idea? Yeah. I mean, I think snap decisions are generally not the wisest. This is an important decision. I think it makes sense to ask for three days. However, look at what he did in those three days. Rehoboam um, talked to two groups. First, who does he talk to? And what do they say? Treat them good and they will... They'll be your servants. You treat them right and they'll be loyal to you and you'll have them as your servants forever. Then he turns to the young men who grew up with him and what do they say? Yeah. You tell them Solomon was nothing compared to you. They thought it was hard then. <laughs> Wait till they get a load of Rehoboam. Now, what, how, what age do you anticipate these young men as being? What are you thinking of? Do you realize how old Rehoboam was? 41. <laughs> so the young men who grew up with him, we're not talking about teenagers now. We're talking about, you know, what we might think of as middle-aged men. But the Bible says they're young. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever. So, um... You're not sitting here with 90-year-old guys. No. I'm sitting here with other young people like me. Um, he actually, what they say to him I, is not uh, an appropriate expression to define in this setting, but probably they are actually using a vulgarity in what they're saying for him to say um, and, and uh, suggesting in very crude language that he's a real man and he makes Solomon look like a pussycat. You know, the idea is, you've got to throw your weight around. You've got to show them who's boss. You know, you just tell them there's nothing doing. There are so many people who think that the real leadership is, you know, uh, just being abusive, is being uh, arrogant, is, is showing them who's boss. That's leadership. I'll just tell them a thing or two. I'm not going to put up with that. It's not biblical leadership. Biblical leadership is strong, but it's humble. It's service-oriented. Biblical leadership doesn't have to exalt itself and try to make a name for itself by bluster and bravado. So Rehoboam is a, a really good negative example for us. He shows us how not to think. So wisely, Rehoboam sought counsel. Unwisely, he accepted the wrong counsel. Comments and questions to this point. I was just going to say, um, he uh, looks to, <coughs> looks to really look for elders and then he looks to people's age and whether uh, not 
how he made his mind. He never consulted with God. Very good point. Just talking to men is really not the key. What, 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 why do you suppose he chose to accept the wisdom of the younger men instead of the wisdom of the older men? To impress them, maybe. That's what I think. That, that is exactly the advice he wanted. People tend to accept the advice that agrees with what they want to hear. It is. It's dangerous when we give that kind of advice. But you just watch it. People shop around for a preacher or a church leader that will tell them what they want. You see people doing that, say, on uh, the subject of divorce and remarriage. You know, they'll go from person to person until they finally find a respected Christian who will tell them it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, anybody can give bad advice. We need to be seeking what the Lord says. And uh, I've encouraged, I had a, a, a young man in Brazil asking me a practical question a while back, and, and I helped him see my answer, but I said, I think you need to ask some other people about it. But with all of us, you need to ask the question, what in the Bible makes you say this? You know, I think that's a, that's a very key thing. All right, other comments through 11? Yes. Time out.